Welcome to the Today's Market Explained podcast. I am your host, Brian Castle, and with me, as always, is the amazing co-host, Chris Reardon. Chris is the Director of Development, and I'm the CEO and founder of Four Star Wealth Advisors. Our promise with this show is to share the most important investment opportunities that we are seeing in ways that are easy to understand and hopefully even easier for you to benefit from so you can make money quickly and easily by investing. Each episode will detail the most important market updates and how best to benefit from them. And we will also be interviewing subject matter experts who can give insights into new and exciting markets and other investment opportunities. So to maximize every episode's value, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com to download, quote, 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals, unquote. Trust us, this free gift will be your cheat sheet for reaching your financial goals in the shortest possible time. And to see all the best and most valuable moments from this episode, please go to Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube. Now, let's see what's happening in the financial markets. Welcome, everybody, back to the Today's Market Explained podcast. And uh, today, uh, this is an interview version. Uh, as, as most of our folks know, we do market commentaries as well. But then we like to interview and talk with key players in the economic world. Uh, and that relates to areas of emphasis and, and concern sometimes as well. Uh, in the ec- economic world. And right now, there's a lot of concern about a lot of things. So um, we are going to talk about lending, the mortgage industry, interest rates. And we have a really interesting character here to join us today. His name is Shashank Shakar, founder and CEO of Insta Mortgage. Uh, welcome, Shashank, to the four-star Today's Market Explained podcast. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. So, so um, we talked earlier about your first name, and it's not Shashank, like the redemption, but it's Shashank, right? Yeah, so it's kind of a take. There's no W in there like Shashank is. It's, it's just right. Shashank. But uh, yeah, it's it's still interesting. I mean, coming to a place where uh, I'm from India, just for the audience, uh, just, just for that background, and coming to a place where it could be hard for people to pronounce your name. Um, I found uh, an able ally in, in Shashank Redemption movies because it I could always reference to, it's just like the movie without the W, so... So it is, okay. uh, it's a fun and interesting take, so to say. So everything in America has to be made easy for people, right? So Yes, uh, exactly. You're some guy. Yes, there That's you good. go. Well, Shashank, well, welcome again to the to the podcast. And, Thanks. And we have a lot to talk about. And, and one of the big issues is your whole industry and how things have developed. But tell, tell us, um, you're from India originally and a state called the Bihar, which is in mm-hmm. the north. Yes. Um, Jason to Punjab and Andhra Pradesh and some of the others up there, um, I believe. And uh, so, so how did you develop this business? And then you moved to from India to here. Tell us that whole that whole evolution. Yeah, sure. I was uh, I was born and raised in a very small village in India, and some people might be surprised that we had uh, we had no electricity, we had no running water, we had no paved roads. I my in my school, we used to sit on the floor because the chair was reserved only for the teachers. So, right. so that's that's how it started. My my mother was a primary school teacher, and very soon, uh, she thought I was I was too smart for for village school. And um, as my luck would have it, my aunt was willing to take me to one of the big towns called Calcutta, which is one of the biggest metros actually in the world, not just in India. And so I went to study there, and eventually went to one of the best business schools in India, uh, majored in marketing, 
worked for General Electric, which we all know is one of the biggest employers in the world, and then moved to a very small company is because I always wanted to start my own company and wanted to learn from people who are building business from scratch. So I go from this huge company called General Electric to this very small company where I was employee number two. So it was a brand new startup and they were doing some stuff on the US mortgage space, but I was still in India. So that's how I moved working to that company. They eventually moved to the, me to San Francisco Bay Area here uh, in the US as, um, as the head of business. And then just what, about 16 months into the new country and the new role here in the US, 2008 happened and everything collapsed as we know, um, not, right. just within, not just within uh, say the US marketplace, but overall financial services and global marketplace took a beating. And that's how the company, which was then VC funded, lost all the funding, shut down its shop. And I was left in a new country with uh, a very young child, $1,900 in savings and practically zero connections. I literally knew Brian, three people in the entire country back then. And those were the three people who just lost the job along with me. So, and uh, But the only thing that I knew, two things really, one is that I really wanted to start something. That's why I had moved to this a smaller company compared to uh, a very successful General Electric stint that I had before. And two, I knew a little bit about mortgages is that because that's what we were doing in the company that just shut down. So I was like, okay, I want to do something on my own. I know a little bit about US mortgages. So what if I have $1,900 in savings and I live in a rented apartment and I really have this small child to take care of? Let me be this entrepreneur that I always wanted to be. So I, I took a shot at it and very quickly realized that was a very stupid shot, that I should not have taken it, <laughs> that I should have played it safe and and, and just gone. And, and They knew nobody. You had $1,900 to your name. You started a company in the middle of the worst recession besides the depression in America. And uh, sounds good to me. Yeah, perfect plan. And mortgage was the dirtiest word on the planet, as you know, because everybody was blaming mortgages for all of this. So everybody was fine. So exactly. So that's that's how it started. So um, of course we are sitting here. So it must have gone okay since then. But uh, what I'm trying to say with, with all of that is it's something that hopefully uh, some of us can learn is that uh, in, in financial services business, some of your advisors. I mean, they are technically CEOs. They run their business on their own. A lot of people post their business on their own, just like mortgages. A lot of us own their business on their own. This is even though even if you work for an organization, you're essentially essentially a CEO of your organization. And so, to do that in in those tough times uh, was even though it was probably more brave than than wise, but it also teaches you on kind of baptism by fire, right? It teaches you how to grow up very quickly how to learn from all that, that chaos that you were in. And then when things go wrong down the road, then you're like, this is not as bad as it was in 2008. So to say from a framework perspective is that that's the kind of framework that you have. And so uh, that's actually, so in a sense, if I look back at it, I mean, it actually worked out pretty well, even though the initial struggle was quite real, of course, given all the challenges. Well, yeah. Um, uh, very interesting. So, so what was how did you how did you offer mortgages during that period of time? Were there any were there any real estate transactions? Didn't real estate transactions go down eighty percent from, from it the did. top? I mean, so yeah, who, it did. Doing- yeah, no one was really buying and refinancing. Sixty five percent of the people within the industry were leaving the industry. So that's eventually that's what was the final number. Is that uh, say if there were hundred people in within the mortgage space, only thirty five 
remained at the end of 2009, 2010. So most people had left the business by then and, and I was getting into the business. Right. Uh, but really, you're right. I mean, the first 12 months, I did seven transactions. That's like half a loan a month, so to say. Uh, last year, as a reference, again, I did over 700. So that tells you the, the kind of transition that I've had from then until now. But um, yeah, no one was buying or refinancing. And I even if they were, I mean, I had no connections. Usually when you get in a business like financial planning or mortgages or real estate, the first people that you talk to are people what are called within your sphere of influence, right? You go to your high school friends, you go to your neighbors, you go to your college friends, you go to your in-laws, you go to those people and say, hey, I'm in this business. Give me some business. Please refer me somebody, anybody that you might know. In my right. case, that wasn't a luxury because, as I said, I didn't know anyone in, in the entire country. I was I was very new to the to the country itself. So I took a step which was very different than, than most people, uh, how they were working the business. I really focused on education as a platform. So I started blogging in 2009 when less than 10 people in the industry were blogging. And so for me, it helped in two ways. One is that I always wanted to build a business on the platform of education, because when you're doing, when you're, when you're in a business like a mortgage uh, or even say financial planning, for, for, for example, education is huge. It's because it's so complicated, so convoluted. It's something that people don't understand. And that's what my value add to them was, look, I'm going to provide you education. I'm going to provide you value even before you choose me as your lender. And so that's why, and the second trend that I was I was noticing is that most of the people were consuming news online starting 2009, 2008. So I was seeing a trend shifting from television and, and print media to more online media. And so even though I wasn't really good at writing uh, to begin with, that's a platform that I chose and that, that I decided to educate clients and 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 took, again, nothing happens overnight as we all know. Uh, I remember blogging twice uh, every week for six months straight. And then eventually somebody called me after six months saying that they saw my blog online. So imagine doing something, spending two, three hours every week for six months and nobody's right. noticing it. And you're like, is this thing even working? Hello, it's someone there. And nobody's there for a very, very long period of time. And then someone calls you saying they saw you. So things started changing after that. But yeah, it was a lot of a struggle trying things which were not in practice, then being getting hugely out of comfort in, in term, from your comfort zone perspective uh, and trying out things which, yeah, nobody was really trying and, and failing at it miserably to begin with. Well, a couple, couple thoughts on all this, you know, they always say in the financial advisory industry that if you're going to succeed, start in a bear market, because if you can make it, then you can make it anytime. Exactly. Mortgage business, that's what you did. Yes. In the worst possible mortgage market you could get, and you still yeah. figure it out. Yeah. Still, congratulations. Um, <laughs> Thank you. The other, the other comment I had about what you said is uh, you mentioned uh, focusing on the educational market. Um, many of the listeners know, but not all of them know that my wife is uh, Asian Indian and born from the Gujarat state, but born in Maharashtra, mm -hmm. uh, which is the state where Bombay is. Yes. And her family and the whole Indian culture, as I've come to know, is very much education based. Yep. And so if you, if you, the best thing you can value is what you know and your knowledge. So it's all about college and making sure everybody goes really formal schools, does, does really good training gets good skills. And uh, so you use that to your advantage then, Shashan. I did, yes, of course. So you basically, when when you have your backs against 
against the wall, then then what you need to be looking at is what are the skills that you bring to the table, which makes you right. different. So right. I I dug into some of my marketing experience from my business school, understanding where the consumer uh, say trends were shifting, and then building on my education background, so to say, and trying to see what is it that the customers need right now. So you were basically trying to combine your uh, the skills that's that's essential. Uh, but also going back to some of the things that you have been taught and bring those those two things together to figure out what will work. And uh, thankfully, it did. Again, it, it did not did not work overnight, but eventually did. Excellent. So, so um, tell us how you how you launched. Like, how did it finally? What finally started to work? Then, you know, did you start to write mortgages? Did you advise on mortgages? What was the initial growth where the revenue started coming in? Yeah, so it was mostly in the in the beginning. It was a very basic model of just trying to originate mortgages. Uh, this was a very small company. We we're just brokering out. We okay. did not have the staff to underwrite mortgages or fund mortgages on our own. It's still twelve months down the road. I hired my first uh, employees. We were still two people, uh, even when we were starting to get about two three loans from half a loan to two three loan was quite an upgrade, so to say. At least I could pay my bills. Uh, at that point of time, and have have this another employee to help me out with a few things, right. and so that's how it started. I remember I think from from seven loans in the first year, uh, I did about twenty six in year two, and I think that ramped to about seventy two in year three. So slowly, people started noticing. So there were two things that you need to do, or we I did is that you need to figure out how do you get people into the door, and then right. once they are they are inside your door then what do you need to do for you to be able for them to keep coming back or 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 having good words about you so really i i i try to simplify this this business model which seemed very complicated to me in the first 12 months because i was i was failing miserably at it i could not figure out how to get clients and so i i try to simplify it saying what are the biggest challenges like what are my two or three biggest tasks that i have to do and i took this huge business where People will do three days of conferences to teach you what to do and what not to do and all of that stuff. And I broke it down into the fact that really you're only solving three problems, which is how do you get more leads? Meaning how do you get more people to call you or email you or come to you? How do you get the, how do you convert those leads? Meaning once they come to you, then how do you close them? And, and how do you make sure that they work with you and not somebody else? And how do you get those converted leads to keep coming back for more? Really, those are the three big problems that you're trying to solve. And, and so I simplified it at a very, very simple level. I said, okay, now that I know that I have to fix these three problems, let me handle one at a time. And which is like, how do you get more leads? So blogging was my way, for example, to do that. And I added more arsenal to that. I started speaking. Um, I started then, then doing events for real estate agents and financial planners and CPAs so that I can give more value to them in terms of where the market was, where it was going, and says, so they would refer me business. And then once they came in is that, what kind of customer service do you provide so that they don't go somewhere else and stay with you? That's the second, solving the second problem. And third was purely database management, is that even though, again, I did not have super heavy tech to work off, I was just working on my Excel and uh, so very basic technology, so to say, but how do you stay in touch? So sending birthday cards, calling them, texting them, sending them off something of value. And so they kept coming back for more and they, they started referring basic, on the yeah. clients. Basic customer service, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a very simple business model, so to say, but you'll be surprised that 98% of the people, uh, at least in my industry, I mean, I, I do keynote spe speeches at most major conferences across the country, and you'll be surprised how people in the business 20, 25 years still struggle is because these three simple business, simple problems to solve with apparently easy solution, um, apparently simple solution. I should not call it easy because it does require a lot of discipline and work and everything else. But apparently simple solutions, people just are not able to do it. Yes, and, and uh, it's interesting at the beginning, you said you found so many things that didn't work, but you know, from the perspective of an entrepreneur, you found successfully dozens and dozens of ways it didn't work on your way to find out what did work. Exactly. I actually wrote an article for uh, Inc. Magazine, how to reframe your failure uh, or four steps to, to, to learn from failure. One of the things is exactly what you just said, what Thomas Edison says that I've figured out a thousand ways in which it won't work, uh, not thousand ways in which I failed. So he basically reframed his failure when he was working on the, on the light bulb is to say, I've figured out a thousand ways it won't work, knowing that in a, in a way saying that I'm getting closer to success or closer to figuring out a way it will. So every single thing that does not work is basically one less thing to work down the road. Now you're hopefully narrowing down your success path. So so that's great stuff. So you uh, developed the business and then it started to work. You started hiring people, building a company. And uh, you mentioned Inc. Magazine, then you were actually recognized by Inc., weren't you? Yeah, twice. In, in 2017, for the first time, we were named one of the fastest uh, growing private companies in America. We, we ranked uh, I think 410, 411. And if you just to give some context to the audience here, Brian, there are about 6 million private companies in the US. So to be named in the top 400, we were in the top 500 in, in the fastest growing. That's, I mean, if you thought Stanford and Harvard's acceptance rate at 5% is low, I mean, we are talking 0.001 or something to be named top 500 out of 6 million companies. So, so it was extremely gratifying for the work that we were doing. Uh, extremely rewarding because that was the first major award and that too it was uh, they call it the most exclusive club in businesses because it's not easy to keep that kind of growth rate over three years and be named in the top 500 so it, it just kind of it gives you that boost to keep doing this more and more is because at some point of time uh, of course it could get tiring and it could get it, it's, it's a very hard work but Inc. Magazine recognized us for that and that was uh, that was a big boost because that really actually put us in, into a different level of growth since then. Uh, and we have grown even faster uh, since the first award that came in. That's great. And so that really helped propel you too as well. Yes, it, it puts you in kind of a more of a spotlight. It gives you something to talk about uh, when you're talking to potential, potential hires, when you're talking to um, potential partners, everybody else, is because they see you as, as playing this, this big field. I mean, an award like that, kind of really puts you, gives you more credibility to what you're doing. You are not just talking what you're saying. There is somebody else who backs that backs that up because they verify all your numbers and everything else. So in the, in the last three years, again, in fact, uh, we have grown so much that we, we came back to win the Inc. 500, this time ranking even better than the last time in the top 400 instead of the top 500. And then we were the only mortgage company last year to be named to the Deloitte Fast Tech 500, which is which is a list which only the tech companies uh, are actually entertained into. It's because there's a technology award and a mortgage company has never won the 
the Deloitte Fast Tech 500. And not just we, we won that, that award or we were named to that award, we actually ranked higher than companies like Zoom and Pinterest and, and Esquire, which we all know is way more household names and, and 100x bigger than our name. But we ranked 110 on that list. And those companies actually ranked lower than us, which means we grew faster than Zoom in a pandemic year. I mean, beat that. So <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, then you've uh, taken some of your success as well and uh, developed an author series as well. You're an author. I am. So yeah, to begin with, as I said, I, I started writing blog, which was one article at a time and really sucked at it. I mean, some of the some of the initial blog posts were very cringy. I've kept it there just so I can I, I can show my kids that you can be this bad a writer. It is possible. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So it keeps you grounded on bad days of writing that that you were this bad. So if I mean you can't go back back to being this bad. But so I've, I've, I've not been a natural writer is what I'm trying to say. Also kind of trying to tell the audience here is that you don't have to be naturally good at something. I was not naturally good at writing. I was not naturally good at speaking. So all of these skills require work. I mean, even if you went to school or college or somebody taught you a course on something, at the end of the day, you still have to practice in the real world. And so you will struggle at it in the beginning, whichever skill you are trying to, or just being good at financial planning, for example. I mean, whatever you're trying to be good at, there's a reason there's a 10,000 hours rule is because you need to keep keep putting into the effort, into the skill. So yeah, I mean, initially I started blogging, but then I realized that um, there was no one place where people who are thinking of buying their first home could read cover to cover all everything that they needed to do. So I wrote my first book, was kind of okay. And then I wrote a book, for the real estate industry, Real Estate Unleashed. So that was meant for people who are within the space, kind of trying to teach them that the world has changed and how do you, it was more a marketing playbook on how to win in the new world of real estate. And then my first home came out, I think about three years back and instantly made it to the number one bestseller list on Amazon and went on to win several awards at New York Book Festival in San Francisco and and several other several other book festivals and so that has been my author journey working on a new book for entrepreneurs uh, about um, uh, how to build a fast growth company because that's what we have built here at Insta Mortgage and trying to take some of those learnings and and um, putting that into a book which hopefully should be out next year my editor has been asking that same question for the last 12 months so <laughs> when is it coming out so we'll see when it when it actually does well, great. Well, that's it's all wonderful. So fast forward to today, um, you're in the mortgage business. What kind of mortgages does Insta Mortgage work with? So we uh, work with uh, residential mortgages primarily. That's what that's what ninety five percent of our business is. We do offer commercial mortgages as well, uh, but most of our clients are people who uh, are buying or refinancing residential homes across the country. We are licensed in twenty six states. Which, which 26 states account for almost three-fourths of all mortgages done in the U.S. So even though in geographically speaking, it's, it's about half the country, from a mortgage production, it's, it's almost 75-80% of uh, total production in the U.S. And we do all possible programs within the residential space. Um, and uh, so anyone who's looking to buying a refinancing, whether they're looking for conventional mortgages or FHA or what is called non-qualified mortgages or big loan we go up to about $15 million in, in loan sizes. So practically any kind of loan that you're looking for from a residential mortgage perspective is what we provide. Nice. And um, 
So uh, what is the state of uh, play in the mortgage industry? Rates are rising now. Uh, we've heard uh, um, uh, purchase, uh, purchase contracts have slowed down dramatically, somewhat sharply. Um, things look a little scary out there. Uh, what, do you, what do you think? It is. It was, I was actually doing a company meeting just before this, and, and I had like a 10-minute talk just on the state of, of where the businesses are. And somebody uh, commented, it, it, it sounds like 2008 all over again. <laughs> so it's, uh, and, and it is. It's, it's probably not as bad as 2008 was, but there, is, there doesn't a day go by before uh, you don't hear about some kind of layoffs or some company closing down. And we are not talking tiny companies with five people. I mean, just uh, the other day, the two companies that closed down, one had 500 employees, the other has 700 employees. Uh, the largest fintech within the mortgage space with over a billion dollar in funding, they have had three rounds of layoff, laying off more than 50% of their employees. Uh, the likes of JP Morgan's and Wells Fargo's of the world have laid off almost half of their mortgage employees. So we are talking uh, a very difficult year because usually... Um, I mean, we all know that the rates went up the sharpest that it has ever been in the history of of mankind, uh, not mankind, but at least within the U.S. Uh, U.S. Um, industry, U.S. mortgage industry. And um, because of that, I think it's just that uh, nobody could plan for it. And you, you can't blame the industry because really nobody saw it coming. Um, none of us really thought that the, the rates will climb so high and so quickly. And that threw a lot of the plans in this manner. And so you had... Um, refinance, of course, going away completely, which which was expected some point during the year that that's going to happen. But the double whammy was that when the refinance went away, you thought you could get some purchase business, but initially the inventory was too low. There were just not enough homes to sell. And now that the inventory is coming back, because the rates are so high, the borrowers are, or the, the potential home buyers are not too um, bullish about, about buying homes. Also, because a lot of their saving, which was either in 401k or stocks, have kind of evaporated because of the the fact that we are in the bear market in the in the stock market. So, and then you have sentiments around inflation, high cost, everything else. And home buying is also a lot a lot of it got to do with emotions, not just a financial decision. And when you see everything around you, economically and financially speaking, not really working out well, sometimes you're like. Let's just stay as is. I mean, why change things when we don't know where the future, uh, what the future lies? So that's how people feel now. You think? Yeah. So, so what what will happen from here? Is is it? Uh, well, let me ask you this: Is it is it uh, year over year as bad a uh, a fall as two thousand eight? You say it wasn't quite as bad, or it it actually is. Uh, so two thousand eight. If you if you look at the year. Year over year, it's actually a worse fall than 2008. The reason being is that 2021, 2000, so 2020 and 2021 were the two of the biggest years for mortgages uh, in the history. We crossed $4 trillion of production each in 2020 and 2021. And the highest we have ever done was, I think, 3.2, 3.3. So we did not just cross the last one by a distance. We did it back to back years. And so we staffed for that. We added all the cost for that. And when we, when I say we, we mean as an industry, when you are staffed for a production that's almost 200% higher than your last production, and then you drop 50, 60, 70, 80%, I mean, within a matter of three months, 
then it's 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 a kind of a landscape which is very difficult to traverse, right? You go from here to here and then you have to suddenly drop here. It's it's very difficult to pilot something like that. And that's where that's where the big challenge is that. And that's why the drop is bigger than 2008 is because from 07 to 08, the drop wasn't as big as it's from the last two years to this year. So, but rates are still rising, is that right? Rates, uh, so I was uh, I was interviewed for time.com uh, about eight weeks, six weeks back. And I had then predicted that uh, I think we are stabilizing on the mortgage rates. And, and even though on a day or a weekly basis, we might see the rates go up or down, that over a period of time, I think it should stay stable. And we have been pretty stable over the last six, eight weeks. Uh, again, we have some seen some weeks where the rates have gone up and some other where it's gone down. And my feeling is that we are probably at at a more stable level now. But but we have stabilized at a rate which is what double than what it was just six, seven, eight months back. So stabilizing is a good thing because constantly rising rate environment sends even more of a bad say feeling, so to say, among among home buyers is because just last week they they got pre-approved at a certain rate. Two weeks later, by the time they get into contract, the rates are much higher. Yeah. But so so at least rate stabilizing, what it does is that after a point of time, when if you're thinking of buying a home, you will like, it is what it is. When you get the initial shock, uh, like, I mean, if the SMP drops, I don't know, to, to 3,700, initially it's a huge shock, but if it stays at 3,700 for next six months, you're like, it is what it is. That's what the the stock the stock price is. Do we want to buy or sell whatever? So I think that's what will happen within the mortgage space as well. Is that once people realize that we are in the five percent range territory and not no longer in the twos and threes, then it is what it is. Do I want to buy a home at this rate or not? Right. So um, is it your sense that once everyone settles down, uh, eventually activity will begin again? Uh, yeah, that's what my sense is that the inventory are definitely is definitely up is because sellers are trying to get in before things get before things worsen and and that's what it does is that the markets that's the thing about real estate is that the market moves so quickly is that it just gives you no notice at all i mean just just about 8 weeks back it was a sellers market now you're in the buyers market in most of the markets in the country maybe mm-hmm. there are still some markets which are holding up i'm in silicon valley which is a very, very strong real estate market. But most of the markets, if you look at it, that's where it is. And But once the inventory going up is actually a good thing is because at the end of last year, we were short about, what, 5 million homes compared to where the demand was. So more homes being on the market is a good sign for housing because once people kind of get a little bit more comfortable with where the interest rate is, uh, this will be a more balanced market where there will be more homes to offer but you won't have to go crazy in terms of offering $100,000, $200,000 over asking. You might be able to get some concession from the seller, but also it will give you an opportunity to buy homes, which practically you had no opportunity in the last two years. I mean, the homes were, when there were 100 buyers, there were like 10 homes. So more of a stability and more of an equilibrium between buying and selling will probably be a good thing for the housing market. Right. So we've seen, we've seen the activity in the mortgage market really crater here. And we're waiting to, to find a level, um, and and then, uh, but we haven't seen as much movement yet in the prices of real estate. Some, um, what do you what do you think will happen there in the near term? And and are there regional differences? Would uh, some of the uh, big cities do worse than the suburbs, or or, or what? Yeah, so it, it does, but also understand that the the problem with the real estate prices being 
being available is usually you have you have a lag of about two months. I'm signing purchase contract now. This will close in 45 days. By the time that gets reported to you and I, you are 60 days out. So what you're seeing today is what probably happened in March and April. And that's why the home prices still seem to be significantly rising. When you are when you start tracking um, the current state of real estate market, meaning that you see, I think Redfin just reported that almost 20% of people who went into contract canceled the contract uh, and mm -hmm. decided not to move forward with it um, in, in certain cases. That's what shows you is that the people are not as aggressive into buying homes as they were, or the homes are sitting much longer than what they were. That tells you where the market is, or the fact that people are able, and there are more homes which are doing price reductions now than they were doing eight weeks back. So we don't see those on home price index yet. We'll probably see that two to three months down the road, but that's where the market is. And that's why I was saying is that we were in a very, very crazy market. And it was kind of, it was understood that you cannot sustain a market like that, whether it's with any asset class, whether you're looking at cryptos or bonds or stock market or real estate in this case, you cannot sustain a market like that forever. So it was bound to happen. The good news is that we still have a huge amount of demand and there is still enough housing shortage when it comes to construction and how much we are constructing versus how much the demand is. So we do not expect any major crash like we did between 2008 to 2010, 11, uh, but we definitely see cooling off of real estate. We definitely see that in certain markets uh, where there is less of a job opportunity, you will see uh, home prices maybe going down double digit, but in markets like say the Silicon Valleys and the Seattles and the Charlottes and the and so some markets which are strong in, in job creation, we'll probably only see a single digit slowdown, maybe even the low single digits, really depends on the market. Interesting. So um, one man's crisis is another man's opportunity. <laughs> oh, while we, we hear loud and clear the crisis, yeah. uh, where would be the opportunities, Shashank? Uh, the opportunities lie in, so you have to be more careful if you're on the, uh, say, say if you're an investor trying to, trying to look for opportunities. Um, there will be multiple opportunities created over next uh, six to 12 months uh, within the real estate space. Uh, people who, who bought during 2009 and 10 came out huge winners when the market turned around in 12 and 13 and 14 and everything. So if you have cash, if you're, if you're able to manage your finances where you're able to finance all these things, uh, the next 12 months is going to present uh, some really good opportunities, especially during fall and winters when even cyclically speaking, the real estate market does cool down even otherwise. So it's it's like it's it's a double whammy from on, on a good side, so to say, is, is to say that the market's slowing down already. You get into the late fall, early winters or late winters, and those three, four months could present a good opportunity because from a fundamental perspective, there's nothing wrong with the real estate market. The employment rate remains to be at the lowest level in, in several decades. Uh, just the June employment report came out super strong at still adding over 300,000 jobs. So overall at the at a, at a economic level, there's not a huge amount of concern. Even if you get into recession uh, for a couple of quarters, I don't see we are looking at a long-term home value decline, but in a short term, it could present really good opportunities. There could be certain neighborhoods, there could be certain homes if you're looking hard enough to be able to get a good bargain, both for homeowners and for investors. But don't wait too long is because I don't expect this to stay 
like the way we did in 2008, where it was probably a three or four years kind of a thing. Here, here it could be a few months kind of a thing. Okay. So what would we uh, counsel a new home buyer to do here? Someone who really is getting married this summer, uh, would like to buy a new home. What, what do they do? Yeah. So when, when you're buying for uh, more from a family emotional kind of a reason, um, timing the market is, is kind of a myth. It's, it's really impossible. When the COVID started, most people held off on home buying, thinking that because everybody has started predicting that now if you can't show homes, everything is in a lockdown, real estate will take the first and the hardest beating of them all. And we all know how that prediction turned out. So when people are buying because their family needs to buy a home, because they have they are getting married or they have kids, so their kids need to go to a different, different school, then you're looking at a much longer term horizon, right? You're thinking seven years, 10 years kind of a time period. In that case, practically every market will give you a positive ROI during that time period. So, I mean, if you, if you look at it historically in the last 50 years when I've tracked it, there has been only one housing crash. That is of 2008, 2010. Other than that, the real estate prices haven't really gone down in double digits really uh, in any year. And, and we are talking when the rates were 18% during the early early 1980s. So this is this is a very, very strong fundamentally speaking market. And so from that perspective, if you're if you're getting married or if you if you're get, if you're having kids or you're buying for that reason, there's no reason for you to time the market, so to say, because even if you end up with five and a half, six percent rate, I mean understand that mortgage rates move in a cyclical basis. And, and the US mortgage markets make refinancing very, very easy as long as you qualify. So your rates could be short term because you could get a lower rate by refinancing sometime down the road. But the house that, that you're buying right now, that's a long term. And if you look at seven, 10 years market trends in literally any market within the US, you will see there is a very strong uh, positive return on investment on when you invest in real estate. Nice. So there's still still opportunities. And uh, if you... Um... You know, the old story of Rip Van, Rip Van Winkle, if you wake up 20 years from now and you're up big and you didn't know it went down a little bit before it went up. <laughs> exactly. That's what I was saying. Is that when you're living in the house, I mean, somebody told me the other day, oh, did you see your house is worth so much? I said, I'm not selling it. So it doesn't matter how much it is. And I'm sure tomorrow it will probably not be that much. But then, I mean, if 10 years later I want to sell it, that's when I, I want to know where the house value is. Yeah. And, and uh, we talk about this on the four-star uh, main market commentary podcast that, you know, the stock market's going down now too. And we don't know where that's going. It could have already bottomed it or it could bottom later. We don't know. And uh, we, we shouldn't, we shouldn't live our life that we're so concerned uh, where we're, we're stressed out to the day to day as to every little move and every little burp and giggle downward. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So the message is we need a house, buy a house. Yeah. Exactly. You need a house, you buy a house. When when you're investing in a house, you can wait a couple of months, you can look for good yeah. deals and, and you will eventually get one. But yeah, if you're buying to live in a house, I've always been of the opinion is that even if you, whether you bought it in 2007, just six months before the crash, or say you bought it three months, like earlier this year, when we probably saw the highest median price that we will see in the next 12 to 18 months, irrespective of when you bought if you're buying at least for five to seven years, you will most likely be not be disappointed with the return yeah. investment that you will get on that asset class. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I firmly agree. Well, great. Well, this has been a really fun discussion. And, um, you know, this uh, interview will be seen by 
at least a few thousand people near term and more later. So is there any other message that you'd like to send the uh, investing public about mortgage industry or just your personal story or anything you'd like to say? Because everyone's listening. You're in the auditorium. <laughs> no, I think I, I, I've talked uh, about everything, both personally and, and from, from an industry perspective. But really, I mean, I think that's brand new. And I've been talking about the same thing is, is investing is more a discipline and a habit, whether you're doing it um, as an investor within the real estate space or even as a home buyer who wants to live in the in the space is that you don't try to try to look at these are these are long-term investments. These are not the asset class. These are not the hopefully you're not buying Bitcoin today and selling tomorrow kind of a thing. Right. If you if this is the kind of asset class you want to invest in, uh, US presents a very strong uh, micro and macroeconomic factors um, over a long period of time. I mean, every country goes through its recessions and 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 sometimes here and there. I mean, but we will most likely not see the kind of 2008 in our generation again. Of course, it's difficult to predict. But given all of that, it's a very, very strong asset class to be investing in if you look at it historically. And so that's what my recommendation will be is that uh, don't let, uh, say, a few basis points in rate impact you in any way. If you if you want to invest in it, then uh, five years later, hopefully you will come back to this interview and say, thank you, Shashank, that you, that you said so, is because chances are you would have made a pretty decent chunk of money on that investment. Yes. So keep your head about you and move forward. Proceed yes. with caution. All right. Exactly. Excellent. Well, this has been great. Thanks for being with us. And uh, I just want to thank you on behalf of all our listeners and our great four-star team here in the headquarters city in Chicago and around the country. Uh, again, thank you very much for joining us. And hopefully we can hear more from you and we'll see a new book soon, I understand, right? Yes, hopefully. Excellent. We'll look for that. And thanks again for being with us. Uh, thanks, everybody. Don't forget to give us a five out of five ranking for this great interview. And uh, we will hopefully check in with you um, on the Shawshank Redemption podcast okay. later on. Is that Cool. Yeah. That is correct. So All check right. me out at shashankredemption.com uh, or the podcast on Spotify or Apple. So thank you again, Brian, for hosting. Thank you. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, everybody. And we'll be back with another really great interview just like this. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about maximizing your stock market returns with the least amount of time and effort, please go to todaysmarketexplained.com and download our free guide on the 65 investment terms you must know to crush your financial goals. If you felt any benefit from this episode, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes and share this with anyone you think will also find value and benefit from this. And please follow Today's Market Explained on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube to see all the short video clips covering the most valuable moments from today's episode. Again, thank you so much for tuning in. We can't wait to tell you everything we're seeing in the financial investment markets. This podcast is provided by Four Star Wealth Advisors for the general uh, public and general information purposes only. The information is not considered to be an offer to buy or sell any securities or investments. Investing involves the risk of loss and investors should be prepared to bear potential losses. Investments should only be made after thorough review with your investment advisor, considering all factors including personal goals, needs, and risk tolerance. Four Star is an SEC-registered investment advisor, maintains a principal business in the state of Illinois. The firm may only transact business in states in which it's notice filed or qualifies for a corresponding exemption from such requirements. For information about Four Star's registration status and business operations, please consult the firm's Form ADV disclosure documents, the most recent versions of which are available on the SEC's Investment Advisor Public Disclosure website at www.advisorinfo.sec.gov.